Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job was a great man, at least in part because he had many children. Does that remind you of anyone? Of course, far more than that, he was a great man because he was rightly related to God, and God blessed him. He used those blessings to benefit others, and the book of Job tells us how this man came to possess the greatest blessing, even greater than what he started with, a nearness to God that resulted in Job seeing him. You know how the story begins in Job chapter 1, this is a multi-pronged attack that God permits Satan to unleash. I invite you to follow along as I start reading in verse 13. The Bible says, There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants at the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another. And said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. When we think about what happens to Job, here at the outset of the book, all through the speeches and replies of his friends, through God's own speech, I keep asking myself, what is God doing here? What is God doing through Job's trials, and I think in that we find help for our own, that we can understand God's purpose. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we open his word together. Father in heaven, thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. Thank you for interjecting truth. We would find none on our own. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much to understand you, to understand your way. Help us, Lord, to rightly relate to you to be perfect and upright, to fear you and hate evil. Lord, I pray that you would use us, that we would not only see your purpose, but not only bend to it, but, but give ourselves over to it and be channels of blessing. Help us, Lord, to be like Job and even greater, like our Lord Jesus, who though we knew no sin became sin for us. Lord, may we get all the benefits that there are to be had out of our trials. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chaim Greenberg was a Russian-speaking Jewish scholar of the early 20th century. 
And he fled the Bolshevik oppression in Russia, moved to Germany, and then eventually to the United States, became a leader of the Zionist movement and an important writer. He's not someone I had heard of until I was reading a little bit about Job and came across his name. In the 1940s, he was writing about the problem in Europe and the elimination of the Jews and what the Nazis' plans were, trying to alert Americans as what was happening and the terrible extreme nature of it all. And he wrote this, what is God doing now? Where is he, if he exists at all? Is he perhaps directing this devilish spectacle, this most terrible bloodbath which our planet has ever witnessed from behind the scenes? Greenberg witnessed World War II, and that pushed him towards an unbelieving skepticism, where he would say, what is God doing? Where is he? Thinking him to be absent. I think sometimes Christians are tempted to slip into unbelief with far less provocation. Our own small difficulties and and trials often cause us to say, why is this happening to me? Why is this thing going the way it is? But I like Greenberg's question a little better than the question we normally ask around Job. Usually when people think about the book of Job, they say, why do the righteous suffer? I like Greenberg's initial question, at least, is what is God doing? Can we see his purpose in this? Is he revealing his plan? Is he showing us what it is that he wants to accomplish in our lives. And as we think about that in the life of Job, can we use that lens of finding God's purpose and apply it to our own lives and trials? Can we see what it is that God wants for us to see what it is that God's doing? Now, of course, before we get into the particulars of this book, there's a lot about Job and his story that Job wasn't privy to. He couldn't see the sons of God coming before the throne in heaven. He couldn't hear the taunt of, the, of Satan who says, I go to and fro in the earth. I go up and down in it. I go where I want. It's mine. He didn't know that his three friends who would come to comfort him would be miserable comforters. And he didn't know that a young upstart named Elihu would prove to have better words than his old friends. Most of all, Job couldn't know the marvelous things that God would reveal. All the, all the blessings that he would give Job because of the trial that he went through this sore contest. Now you and I, we have many advantages over Job. Not only do we have the entire book in front of us, and I would uh, not ask you to raise your hand and say if you've read the entire book of Job. Uh, if, you, if you haven't, uh, I encourage you to do so. It's not an easy book to read. I get, used to think of to myself, I get the beginning of the book of Job. Uh, Job is tested, passes the test. I get the end of the book of the Job. He gets all the stuff back and he gets all these kids. What's all that talk in the middle? <laughs> It can sometimes be a difficult slog. We'll try and tackle some of that tonight. Of course, not all of it. But we have not only the benefit of seeing the whole book of Job, but we, we know something more of God's purpose because of what it was revealed in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, our Lord Jesus can liken his glorious, majestic, miraculous life to a corn of wheat. And says, if, if it doesn't go into the ground, it can't bear fruit. But if it goes in the ground and dies it can bring forth much fruit. And so he says there's a purpose to this. I'm going to take my life. No one takes it from me, but I take it. I have the power to put it down. I have the power to take it back up. That's what the Father's taught me, and he does it. He does it. And here we are today, still bringing forth fruit because of that one corn of wheat that went into the ground and died almost 2,000 years ago. God's purpose. Jesus embraced that, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, he embraces it for the joy that was set before him. 
He endured the cross because there was something on the other side of it. God has a purpose in our life that is a joy to us. He's not leaving us to slog out our own existence. He's not leaving us to wander aimlessly. He shows us his purpose and what it is that he wants us to do. So we know far more through scripture than Job could have known about suffering and God's purpose through trials. We also have our own trials, our own experiences, and the benefit of seeing how God delivered us, how God brought us through, how God provided for us. I once heard someone consider a great personal tragedy, something that had been very near to them, and they made a comment. God doesn't have a plan B. It takes faith to think that way, to face something very painful, to face something very difficult and say, God has only a plan A. God's not surprised. God's not overwhelmed. His plan's not derailed. It evidences trust in God's purpose. And as I thought about that comment, it led me to to think about something maybe a step further. And that is, what God does in the end is what he was doing all along. What God does in the end of the book is what he was doing all along. There's no part derailed. There's no plan B. What is God doing at the end of the book of Job? I want to see three things from this book, and we'll do this quickly. Three things from the book of Job uh, that we can see. Number one, we see that God is teaching the faithful. God is teaching the faithful. What did Job know before his trials began? We'll do these quickly, but look at Job chapter 2 and verse 10. Job has an amazing response as he speaks to his wife, who is losing hope, and says, curse God and die. In verse 10, Job says, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. What a marvelous response. Trusting that not only God was in charge, but that God can give him difficulty, God can give him blessing. He could take both from God's hand. I once heard a pastor talk about Uh, Abraham and how he had to give up both of his sons. He had to give up Ishmael, the son of the flesh, but he also had to offer Isaac, the son of faith, on that altar. And the imagery used there was of our hands being open for God to put a blessing on and then to keep it open so he could take it off and put something else on. And take that off and put something else on. And the difficulty we have of wanting to close our hand around those things. But the joy of seeing God do all these things is great. Job has the right attitude there. Turn over to Job chapter nine. In Job chapter nine, he's dealing with his friends, these miserable comforters, and I don't want to go too far into their discourses. That would be a long night for you. Uh, I was in a church in Ohio once. One of Pastor Tom's friends was, was memorizing the book of Job, and on New Year's Day, he quoted the entire thing from memory while the whole church sat and listened. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I could not do that. I would not ask you to do that. Uh, I amazed, I'm amazed that somebody was able to accomplish that. I could not personally do that. Uh, I will also say this. He preached so long in the book of Job that when the kindergarten Sunday school teacher asked the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of the boys replied, I want to be a preacher so I can tell people about Job. <laughs> Might be time for a new sermon series. <clears throat> but as Job was talking about a situation, he reveals something of his knowledge of God. He says in verse Number 32 of Job 9, for God, he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman 
or intermediary betwixt us that he might lay his hand upon us both. Job knows something he's lacking. This is all before God reveals more. This is Job's base level knowledge as he's coming into these trials. He knows that God can give good. He knows that God can give difficulty. And he says, I I need somebody to stand between us. So then when you get to chapter 19 and verse 25, and you hear this amazing statement where he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job's dealing with these friends who each give the same kind of answer, but from different places. And like I said, I won't go into each one of those things, but what does he know about God? He knows that there's a Redeemer planned who will come, stand on the earth in the latter day, and he knows that he will see him for himself. This is an incredible amount of knowledge, but what does he learn through this trial? Well, when God starts to speak, he learns a lot. Chapters 38 through 42 are God's discourses, where he talks about many things related to his power, his creative energy, his understanding of what he's made, his understanding of the needs of each creature, so that when we get to chapter 42, in verse number 5, Job says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Job would say, I've learned something through all of this. Why would he say that? Well, he wouldn't say it if the discourses of chapter 38 through 42 did not have content that he needed to hear. We'll look at that content in a moment. But God is showing him something about himself. God's giving him a charge to do at the end of this book when he calls those three friends to come to Job and Job to intercede for them. Will God hear his intercession? You remember how the book opened, if you could think back to chapter 1, where Job is a great man with all of these animals. We'll look further at that as well. He's thinking, he keeps saying we're going to look for things further. That's getting longer, Mr. Barfield. Sorry. Uh, but he has these children. And what's he doing? Ten kids. It's a rare month that in the Barfield household when we don't have a birthday to celebrate. Job had two more than we did, so he had lots of birthdays. And on those birthdays, he would pray for his children and offer sacrifices, intercede for them, concern for their well-being and their soul. Did God hear that prayer? Did God answer the way Job hoped? They're all gone now. Each one passed away in that terrible wind storm. Job must have had some level of uncertainty, even as he's dealing with the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health, and his wife telling him to curse God and die, his friends coming and making his situation worse. He must have been thinking, I was praying for my children. I was praying for my children. What happened to them? Were my prayers effective? What a relief it must have been then when God said to him, you see those three men over there? Pray for them. And why would God say that? Because God knows that Job knows how to pray. God knows that he'll answer Job's prayers. In fact, this is exactly what we see here at the end of the book, which, like other things, we'll look at in a little bit more. So God's revealing much to Job about a situation, and much about himself. He's teaching the faithful. What does God do with trials? He teaches believers. We learn something from trials that we wouldn't otherwise learn. We get something we wouldn't otherwise get. And the skeptic says, well, couldn't he do it some other way? Couldn't he do it some other way? We marvel. Does it have to be this way? The true marvel is that there's any way at all 
that he could get through to you and to me. That he could take us, who were his enemies, and instead make us his own, and instead make us wise rather than foolish, strong rather than weak, clean rather than filthy. He does that, and he uses trials to that end. Praise his name, that it's possible, and that with Job, after a trial, we could say, I had heard of you, but now I see you. I would heard of you, but now there's more of my understanding. Now I get to be used in new and different ways. God was teaching the faithful. More than that, he was exposing the enemy. He was exposing the enemy. As we said, as we started this message, there were things about this situation he didn't understand. Things that he couldn't have seen or heard. The scene in heaven as Satan went with the sons of God before God's throne. But God reveals that. And, you know, there's some things that happen in this trial that we need to think about. As Job talks to his friends, he focuses on God. Through all of the discourses, there's no mention of Satan uh, between Job and his friends. Job is talking what God's purpose is, what God's doing. He sees God's hand in his life. We'd be wise to take that same pattern. We don't need to give Satan too much credit. I was talking to some friends from uh, Iraq once, and we were at an um, interesting situation where some refugees were relocated to North Dakota. And a friend of mine who was at the church called me out. He said, do you speak Arabic? I said, sure. He said, can you speak to these people? Because we don't know what they're saying. I said, that'd be wonderful. So I flew out to North Dakota, and we had this meal. It turned out there were two groups of refugees from Iraq that had settled in Fargo, North Dakota. That's a long way from Iraq. That's a long way from Baghdad. But there they were, and they were part of this church, and the people weren't sure, are these believers? Who are these people? Can you understand them? So we had some time to share and to talk. It turned out there were two groups. One was a Syrian Catholic. This is an ancient Iraqi group of people uh, that has converted to Christianity long, long ago and has held a nominal form of Catholicism for many years. The other group that's there were the Yazidis. And the Yazidis are a very interesting small group, an offshoot of Islam, something of a cult. And uh, there's some unique and peculiar beliefs of the Yazidis. We were at a dinner, and we had this time for Q&A, and the first question from one of the Assyrian Catholics to the Yazidi leader was, we've heard that you Yazidis worship the devil. Is that true? I thought, oh boy. That's a rough start. <laughs> The Yazidi man was very gracious, and he replied, you know, we don't really worship the devil, we're just afraid of him, and so we offer stuff to kind of get him to go away. He said, but we're going up this side of the mountain to God, and you Assyrian Catholics are going up this side of the mountain to God, we're all trying to go up the same mountain to get to the same God. I said, it's very kind of you to be so polite to somebody who just said you worship the devil, but let's be clear, at the top of the mountain we all find that we're far, far, far from God that all of our best efforts could never get us there, and he had to do something for us. It was not good to give too much credit to the devil. It's not good to focus on his agency. Job, pardon, Job and his friends don't do that. They, they focus on God. So God reveals Satan. In Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see this story of God uh, talking about the sons of God coming before him to give an account, and Satan coming up. As we said, Job wasn't aware of this, didn't understand this. But not only did God uh, reveal that Satan was involved, he undid the plans of Satan. Satan is very clear in his objective. Satan says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to touch Job's substance. I'm going to touch Job's body. He's going to curse you to your face. Instead, 
Job ends the book saying, I'd heard of you, but now I see you. Instead, Job ends the book with more substance. Instead, Job ends the book helping Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar become rightly related to God because God said, you three have not said the right thing about me as my servant Job have, so go to him with a sacrifice and him I'll receive, and they did that very thing. So we started the book with Job being by himself. We end the book with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar now on Job's team, rightly related to God through the ministry of Job. Satan's losing ground. Not only did he lose ground for that time, but we have this person, Elihu, who's kind of an interesting character and one that I wrestled with for a while. What's the role of Elihu? Who is this guy? Why is he talking? What does he have to say? We know one thing for sure, that he didn't raise God's censure. God doesn't say, Elihu, you're like these other three. You also need to make a sacrifice. You said the wrong thing about me. I think had he said something wrong, God would have mentioned that. So let's say that he said the right thing about God. The other thing that we know about Elihu is that he's younger than the other men. So what is his implication? The implication is, God says to Satan, I told you before, you can consider my servant Job. This is next-gen Job. Not only did you lose today, because Job didn't curse me, his three friends are now rightly related to me, but in the next generation to come, there's that guy, and he'll stand up then. And you'll keep losing. And you'll keep losing, and you'll keep losing. Did I mention the devil loses? There's very few things that make me that happy. <laughs> Try not to focus on it too much. God undoes Satan's plan and says, you can also consider my servant Elihu one day. I like this, uh, this statement to Job in Job chapter 40. Turn there, please. Job chapter 40. When he talks to Job and he says, something about his own nature, and he asked Job if Job can do this. Look at verse 10 of Job 40. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. To whom is this referring, if not to the Satan? who came and said to God, I go wherever I want in the earth, up and down, to and fro, it's mine. And God says to Job, I stop the proud in their place. I stop them. God completely exposes the enemy and undoes his plan and lets us know he's going to keep doing it over and over and over again. We feel often so futile in our attempts to resist the temptation of the devil. We feel so weak, like we can't do this. The good news is that God can, and he does right now, and he will continue to do so, and we can be beneficiaries of that today. We can rightly relate to God as Job did, and help others did as the three friends eventually did, and go into the future with our children and the next generation of Christians still resisting the devil, still submitting themselves to God, still standing up with the word of truth, doing all to stand in the evil day, and standing we can be confident people for our own daily trials and for all the ones that will ever come. Think of the joy of that. The enemy trampled under our feet shortly, as the New Testament tells us. God exposes the enemy. That's what he's doing. 
What is God doing? He's revealing his plan of victory. This reminds me of something in Daniel chapter 9, when the angel says to Daniel in verse number 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to bring in everlasting righteousness. What will God do in the end? He'll bring in everlasting righteousness. What does that mean he's doing now? The same thing. Isn't that wonderful? God's bringing in righteousness now. Jeremiah 9, uh, one of my favorite. He exercises judgment, loving kindness, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, said the Lord. He's doing it now. And he can do it through us. God's plan is what he does at the end. He's doing even all along. So not only is God teaching the faithful and exposing the enemy, we see finally that he's saving the lost. And uh, we see this directly with his friends, but I want to see this in a little bit different way. Turn over, please, to Job chapter 39. And as you do so, I want you to think back to this person, Job, and a little bit about him. We know Job had two domains in which he excelled. He was really good at having children. Good old Job. He was also very effective in raising animals. We saw in the beginning of the book that he had sheep and camels and oxen and asses, donkeys, as it were. He has all of these animals, and he's quite good at it, something of his wealth and his might, but also of his skill. He knew how to raise these domesticated animals. He knew how to take care of them. He knew when they were going to give birth. He knew when they needed to eat. He knew how to care for these animals. So it's very interesting to ask a domesticated animal expert what he knows about wild animals. It's like asking a farmer to take care of a zoo. It's a very strange cross-domain question. So when you get to chapter 39 of Job, God says to him, knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calf? Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Go down to verse number five. Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Look down at verse number nine. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Look over at verse number uh, 13. Gave us out the goodly wings into the peacock or wings and feathers into the ostrich. Look down at verse number, uh, let's see. Uh, let's go down to verse number, should have written that one down. Go down to verse 26. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? God says, this animal and this animal and this animal. What do you know about them? It'd be a little bit like me saying this tonight. How many of you here, which if you'd raise your hands, are engineers? Raise your hand. Got some engineers? Go ahead, raise them up. Let me see engineers. Great. So you've all said you're engineers. So if I said to you, let's, let's assume that you all are electrical engineers. I don't know what you are in your engineering. Let's assume you're electrical engineers, and I were to say to you and ask you something about chemical engineering. Do you know how to oxidize an imidazole? Can you precipitate gold out of aqua regia using ferrous sulfate? If I ask you those questions, you might get frustrated and say, that's not my domain. I'm an electrical engineer. I don't do chemical engineering. Unless you're a chemical engineer, then you're, you're great. Help me get that gold out of that the aqua regia, if you could. <laughs> God's asking Job, do you know how to do these things? Job says, no, I care about domesticated animals. And God says, that's right. You care about domesticated animals, the ones that you can control, 
the ones that are already in your barns and already in your house. But what about the wild ones that have to be fed and cared for? Who cares about them? I do. How is that important? Because the other domain that I think ties to this are children, people. Job cared for and prayed for and put his attention on his 10 children. Lord, are they right with you? Are they right with you? Are they right with you? And God is in essence saying, look at these men that are wrong with me. They're not right with me. They need help. Like you cared for your domesticated animals, you care for your sanctified children, but there are other people that are lost. There are wild animals and they're lost people and they need help. And I care for them, God says. Job, do you? Do you care for these lost ones? You spend all this effort and time on the sanctified things, on the things you already have, the things that are already right with me. What about these lost ones? It's a convicting question, one that I think must have given Job pause. Job was so concerned with this, and we know that he was effective in it. Ezekiel chapter 14 gives the great example of Noah and Daniel and Job. God says there's coming a day that's going to be so bad that if Noah and Daniel or Job were in them, they would only save their own souls. They would take with them neither son nor daughter. I think we can see by implication, not only from the text of Job, but also from Ezekiel, that Job knew how to pray for his children, that he was effective in seeing them saved. And the wonderful thing is that Job allowed God to take away his substance without cursing, to take away his children without cursing, until God redirects him towards a new ministry, a ministry to these miserable comforters who've been telling him how bad he is. And what happens? He brings them to God. He stands in the gap and he wins them. And now there's more people following God than ever before. We allow God to change our focus as Job did. God knows them that are his. He knows his children. They are his special care. But he cares for the lost ones around. Think about the parable of the lost sheep. That Jesus said, the, the 90 and 9 are left, and he goes out and gets the one. And when you think about that one sheep, think about Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and your neighbor and your aunt and your coworker. That God wants you to be a part of winning to him. This book of Job is one of the most referenced in all of literature. Alexander Pope and Lord Byron in England referred to the man from Uz. Fyodor Dostoevsky utilized Job many times and extensively in the Brothers Karamazov. Herman Melville directly quotes Job six times in Moby Dick. There's a book out by Stephen Vicchio. He has three volumes on Job. He mentions that from 1950 to the year 2000, 24 full-length plays were written about this book. I wonder if all that consideration helps people realize what God's doing, what his purpose is. What does God do in the end of the book of Job? He converts three men to follow him through the agency and influence of Job. He rescues Job and turns his captivity. And I think when I see Elihu, I see God establishing the official academic chair of satanic opposition with Elihu. Elihu's there into perpetuity, into the future, I should say, standing against Satan. 
What God does in the end is what he was doing all along. And with that testimony, we need to trust the Lord through our trials. We need to trust the Lord through our circumstances and see him doing these very same things. Will you trust the Lord for your own salvation if you have not yet done so? Will you trust the Lord to teach you what you don't know? Will you trust the Lord to use you to bring others to him and let him quickly move your attention from one concern to the next as he sees fit? Job was a servant of God, mightily used, still being used. And I believe God gives him, gives him as an example to us so that we will follow it. Will you trust the Lord as Job did? This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.